Good morning, class. Welcome, everyone. We're down to the last two installments of our least of these class, and today we're going to get a lot of brass tacks, I trust, and a lot of discussion. It is uh, January 12th. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for a new day. Thank you for the hope and confidence uh, you give us through the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with joy, with peace, through the triumph of Jesus Christ over all things. Uh, not least sin and death and the grave. And uh, if that, then of course in our relationships where we mess up so easily as frail human beings. Please come now by your spirit and use this class to encourage us, to help us, to teach us, and to make us more and more those who reflect the image of Jesus in the way we love and serve and trust and embrace one another. In Jesus' name, amen. We are on page 2421 of your handout, the uh, report from the PCA commissioners has specific suggestions for congregations, and I'll read for speaking at line 23, and I have uh, something for us to do based on their suggestions in this paragraph. So their first specific suggestion for congregations, of which you are one, is to designate a season of prayer Lament, discernment, and discussion for your session. So just this little diagram on the board, what we are discussing this week and hopefully next, I will then pass on to your session that they can consider what steps to take in the whole, next in the whole area of racial reconciliation, uh, our role as a congregation. So that's the... I want to promise you that I will do that. Seek the Lord for a unified commitment to racial reconciliation among the leaders of your church. Pray for soft hearts and thick skin at the very beginning of this journey, a spirit of humility and an openness to the possibility that we've been wrong on this issue. Ask the Lord to give his wisdom, insight, and conviction so that your leaders can celebrate evidence of grace, <coughs> repent of particular sins and failures, and pursue the fruit of repentance and specific actions. Pray that the Lord would make your neighbors visible to you because <clears throat> there are often representative people groups in your neighborhood that you've not really seen. This is also a good time to discuss each member's personal history with regard to racial self-awareness, shaping experiences and influences in ways that your past affects your present thoughts on race for good or ill. This may take time, but be patient, prayerful, and expectant that the Lord will hear your prayers. So let's do that. Let's talk together about our own experiences, personal story with regard to racial self-awareness, the things that shaped you, influenced you, uh, and affect your thoughts for good or for ill. So the floor is yours. Speak loudly so the microphone can hear. And uh, particularly interested in uh, those who would see themselves in a minority, but not exclusively. So we need to re- hear from each other. Hey. Yeah, so I grew up in Massachusetts, which is not a particularly racially charged state, especially in the area that I grew up in. Um, I did not grow up seeing very many racial tensions. To me, if there was someone who was uh, of a different culture, if it was just a characteristic, just like 
called it, but um, it was presented to us there that everywhere people went, there was hatred in their hearts for people. That was not my experience. And so we really kind of got into it because uh, they would say, you know, if you're white and you see a black person entering your store, you're going to be holding your purse more closely to you, for example. And so that was not my experience. And so I kind of vociferously argued that that was not the case for everyone. And so it was really uh, learning for both sides where um, if you're from the South, you certainly have a different experience than if you're from other areas of the country. Um, it was an eye-opener to me to see my experience certainly wasn't everybody else's, but then there are some people that were trying to also put their experience in saying that that was universal as well. So for me, the big lesson was people have very different experience with racial issues, and it's very important to know what other people's experience is, but they're all going to be different. Okay. So follow-up question. Did that put you at any specific advantage or disadvantage relating to people different than you later on in your life? Oh, it, it definitely helped me to be aware because before that, well, again, I was also 18, my assumption was I knew it was different in other, in other places, but generally my experience was pretty, you know, normal. And most people were kind of like me, which is very naive, but it helped me to transition away from that to say I need to be more aware of other people's experiences and the way that they might be thinking about things um, and be sensitive to that whether they're whether they're right or wrong. Because that there are other people that also have wrong judgments about the way that other people are thinking, but I need to know what that is and to be able to approach that not as like this is a right or wrong issue necessarily, but just to be sensitive about it. Good. So simple observation people have different experiences than our own. And I think as human beings, we tend to think my experience is the norm. If this is the way it was for me growing up in such, a, such and such a place, it's that way for everyone. And I think one of the takeaways from this is ditch that assumption and learn to listen and, and uh, learn from other people because we don't all have the same experience. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> what can we learn from each other's personal stories with respect to racial self-awareness? What shaped our influences and experiences, present thoughts on race for good or ill? That's what's before us. Marty? <clears throat>
Can you be specific on someone? <coughs> um, <coughs> Thank you. Yeah, I thought, uh, my, I thought that the goal was to be, you know, to not think about race. That race was sort of a non-issue. I guess the term, sometimes term is colorblind. You don't think about it. Just sort of a non-issue. And I sort of realized in speaking, especially with his brother, and then later with others, that, you know, that, that was so naive because... You know, for especially, you know, he explained that for African Americans, I mean, race is like ever present. He said once for students, get ready for Thanksgiving. You know, Thanksgiving coming up. So I bet when you all go and have your Thanksgiving dinners, that uh, will anybody in your family bring up issues related to race? And you know, all of us white guys sitting around said no. So I can guarantee that every African American family. Together, Thanksgiving race is going to come up in the conversation. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, it's just so. So the idea of sort of ignoring race became, you know, I realized it was very naive. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. I'm so Shirley. Oh, I'm sorry, Dorian. Uh, <coughs> Dorian. Now, I was agreeing with about race. So I grew up in the north in New York and New Hampshire and my folks were very liberal, very were active or I was taken to during civil rights, civil rights marches in Yerushalayim, New York and the students there and I was pretty integrated um, school and all. Um, so sort of thought, you know, everything was well people were were aware of these issues, which is why it really saddens me hearing you know, the history of the PCA, which is very different. But I think a eye-opening experience for me was coming <coughs> after living in Egypt, where um, you know you're a minority, but you're a high-class minority. You know, but you you do stand out in the crowd. Um, and being at Wallace, uh, so this is the early 80s, we lived right near the church building, and which had become a very integrated neighborhood. And <clears throat> since we lived in the neighborhood, we had signed up to pass out BBS flyers. And we had a, a meeting of um, the, the people who were going to be involved in promoting BBS and BBS there. And um, our sister Jan Adams looked at the flyer and said, well, you know what, <laughs> it's all white kids, it's not, people are going to get the flyer and say there's nobody like me here. And, you know, that just, it's a good reminder, it's a very good reminder, and in her own gentle way, to say, you know, it might have been unintentional. But, uh, you know, nobody had even thought of that, you know, in creating these lovely flyers to hand out in the, in the neighborhood. So, I can't remember if they were changed that year or not, but uh, I think we hopefully did in the future. What was the demographic <clears throat> at that point for Wallace? Right now, there's a, a, a significant diversity. I mean, certainly white is the majority, but there's a lot of <clears throat> diversity beyond that at Wallace now. What was the demographic back then, do you remember? <clears throat> was it like today? Well, it was just a, it was a lot larger 
And so I think the impression was that you got it much wider versus larger. Um, and then when we planted the daughter churches, and I'm saying the daughter churches, most of those congregants were, were white, so I think the proportions changed. I know Jan, do you have a perception of that? Yeah, I think that's true. Practical example from Wallace, and we'll flush that out as we move through our discussion for going well, forward. I'll just piggyback um, what Marty said about, um, oh, sorry, about Thanksgiving uh, or gatherings. I mean, most of, well, many, many of you know my kids and my sons, and um, we were having. I maybe Thanksgiving, but you know, we were all there. And Anchor, who's uh, you know a Navy grad or Marine officer, said, "I got stopped on the way to Quantico, and the tape, and the conversation completely stopped. The so no one said, so everyone was just gasped. Uh, and um, and he said." <laughs> Well, you know, I do tend to drive fast. And, uh, and so he said, I was on my way to work and I was pulled over. And, you know, it, it, just the fact that we were all completely silent and we were just like, what could have happened to you? And then he said, well, I have my uniform. So, so that was a way of him telling us, well, the dialogue changed because I had on my uniform. Mm. I don't know what would have happened if I didn't have on my uniform. So he had his uniform, the officer gave him a warning and you know, all that. Another example would be Isaac. Um, Isaac had a little car and he wanted to fix it up. So he darkened all the windows really dark and he put on some big fat tires. And so he was so proud of himself. He was so proud of himself. So he went to take his then um, girlfriend out for dinner and he got to her house and her dad came out and just reamed him out and said, You are crazy, <coughs> you are a black child, you have you cannot ride with my daughter is not riding with you in this car. You don't even know how much peril you're putting yourself in. And that eventually that relationship had an end. But so so I think that to say that race is always a factor and it's not a matter of education or class or um, you know, um, it, it is simply a factor because it, it is our reality. Mm -hmm. Thank you. <clears throat> I think one thing I've learned over the last couple of years of how important it is when I hear someone speaking with a colorblind mentality to challenge that. Elaborate for us. Well, define, just, just for the radio's sake, define <laughs> what you mean by colorblind mentality. I think we all know, but go ahead and define that. There's and a book then, that I haven't read that 
seems to have been very popular that maybe a lot of evangelicals have read. And it's, I, I, so I cannot speak to what the book really said, but what I infer from what I've heard people talking is that you don't pay attention to the color of a person's skin. Everybody is God's child, and that doesn't make a difference. I might be oversimplifying it. <laughs> God created us diverse in the body of Christ. God wants a diverse church. And for all the things that we've been going through in the premise and the foundations of this class, there is a history, a unique history and experience that every ethnic group, every race carries. And we need to respect that. We need to find out what we don't know about that and listen, 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 and be in their shoes. It's not, it, it's, uh, Jan told me in a discussion that we had, it's like they're looking through someone and they're invisible and they're not there. Mm. Thank you, Shirley. Nate? Can I just take that one step further? I, I appreciate that. Um, I think one trap we can fall into is saying, I'm going to learn about one race or something like that, and that's going to apply to everybody. And then you, again, have people that have different experiences within that. But to me, I always take that a little further to say, we really want to get to know, if possible, people and what their experience is, because no two people really have the same experience or the same attitude. And so for some people, there may be, we want to have a goal of kind of a colorblind society, which is people aren't defined by their race or their traits. And other people may say, well, I actually do want you to um, see me as being different because of my history. So we're going to want to be treated differently, and I think we need to get to know individuals and see how they would like to be treated in order to best serve them. Thank you. Marty? I mean, this whole colorblind issue is an interesting thing to me because it seems that, you know, it is, it is related to our experience. And I think for those of us who sort of been the racial majority, you know, we, have, we, have, we don't think about race. And so we think that the goal is we don't think about race. And that's our experience. But it's, you know, the, the reality is, is that a lot of folks think about need
you're clueless. And you know, you don't understand sort of the realities of what life is like for folks. And so the things that people said about listening to others and hearing the stories of other people, and that was been really enlightening for me. Showed me how naive Good. Good. Thank you. Actually, a lot of that, those lines are family reunion was here in D.C. a couple years ago, and um, it's a, there's like a couple hundred people. Anyway, so, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, so the, there's some judges and police officers among us cousins, and uh, so before the whole thing could even start, they said, we're having a session on what to do if you're stopped by a police officer. That was the way, even though there's this long elaborate agenda of all these different things, but they said, this is the most important thing for everybody. At your family reunion? At our family reunion, which was, you know, meant to be, it's in D.C., we're going to do all these, you know, things, but mm -hmm. that was, they said, we're changing the agenda, and this is the most important thing for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, put your window down, put your hands up, mm -hmm. all of it, you know. So, so that's well. just the reality. Mm -hmm. I'll share my experience with y'all. Um, my father used racially charged slurs Sadly, my mother, it drove my mother crazy. She hated it. I remember her saying the war between the states was the most awful thing in the world. She grew up in New Jersey. When she was um, 22 years old, this would have been in 19, uh, let's see, she was born in 1949, she joined the NAACP. My mom was white. She joined the NAACP as a 22-year-old. That's just the coolest thing. I was like, wow, mom. So, so I sort of had this, I don't think my dad was a racist, but I, he, he just, he used language that, you know, drove my mom crazy and we just knew in principle shouldn't be used. For me, the, the, um, the positive thing is we heard about the gospel first at the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Anybody know FCA? That's how we first heard the gospel. We grew up in a dead Episcopal church, didn't hear the gospel. And so for being an athlete, the, the whole FCA thing is athletes have a platform, put them in front of people, let them share their faith, and then that's, that's what happened to me. And we had white athletes, we had black athletes, and, and uh, so we're hearing about Jesus from, from this, and that. So, and that was just that was just wonderful. We actually um, one of the uh, there's a linebacker for the Colts, Baltimore Colts back in the day, Ray May. I don't know if you remember number 56, Ray May, really good linebacker. We ended up meeting him at an FCA conference, and he actually came to our house for dinner. I mean, just he was just followed up on the friendship that developed. But and that wasn't an issue an issue at all. But for me, the level the leveler was Christ. Is that here <coughs> athletes of either color? Just talk about what it meant to follow Jesus. So I was very, very grateful for that. And uh, proud of my mom for <laughs> she did. 
I don't know. I, I learned about that later in life, actually, and I uh, didn't have a chance to, and she's with the Lord now, I didn't have a chance to ask her what that was all about. But anyway, so I think the Lord uh, saved me from what could have been worse in, in the home that I grew up in. Grateful for that. And that was in Maryland? Was that when you grew up in Maryland? Well, my dad was from Baltimore. Um, I, uh, I didn't grow up, no, I grew up around the Beltway in McLean, basically, sixth grade through college. And then some in Richmond, Virginia, you know, that, in the 60s. Plenty of racism in Richmond, Virginia in the 60s. <clears throat> some of my experience. Want to hear from your experiences? I have kind of a unique uh, set of experiences with this. I grew up in New York City as well, but didn't have the same kind of experience that you did, Lori. I grew up in Queens, um, in the neighborhood that John Gotti was in control of. And uh, my brother went to school with his son. And uh, the mob's social club was about four blocks away. And uh, the neighborhood was just homogenous in uniform. We were the odd ones, actually, because we were Irish. Um, the, the neighborhood was almost completely Italian. And, uh, my, uh, my brother-in-law, who was Italian, uh, to this day, uh, lauds uh, Gotti and all of what they did. The neighborhood was uh, very calm. Nothing happened in the neighborhood because the mob was in control. And uh, some of you may have seen the movie with Daniel J. Trafonti, I guess his name was, um, about uh, this black man who was run into Bell Parkway by a group of hoodlums. Well, those hoodlums actually were my brother's friends. And uh, my brother actually was supposed to be with them that night. They all went to jail. Uh, they ran into the Bell Parkway and he got hit by a car <clears throat> and died. My father um, really had a very different perspective and tried <coughs> to raise us with this perspective. Um, he lost his, his, he was blacklisted in his career because he stood up for a coworker who was black. He worked for the Bowery Savings Bank in New York and went to the president about things that were occurring with his coworker. And he was blacklisted and eventually forced out of his job because of that. Mm. Um, so fast forward several years now. So now I'm running a retirement community in Annapolis, and those of you who are familiar with Annapolis know that Annapolis is kind of like a small town. It, uh, it doesn't present itself that way, but it's a, it, everybody knows everybody in the town. Hmm. And um, when I first got to Annapolis, uh, I got introduced to kind of the ugly side of Annapolis. So as I was doing my job running this retirement community, I was hiring people to fill positions, senior level positions and other positions. And um, I, I always hire, I try to hire the person who I think has the best qualifications. 
And um, so some of those people were black. And I had members of my community come meet with me. I had a member of my board have a sit down with me about, what are you doing? And I said, I'm not going to discriminate. I'm going to hire the best person that I can find, regardless of their color. And um, I, it, it's still alive and well. This attitude is still alive and well. So that's kind of I've got a kind of an interesting history in this particular perspective, and I thank my father for uh, for instilling that in me. Mm. Good. Thank you. <clears throat> Huang? I don't understand. And I don't understand this whole racial issues. Because I grew up here in the 90s. I grew up in Iowa. I grew up in South Carolina. I never had a problem. Okay, so that this is what we're trying to come to understand. Nate started with uh, growing up in a certain way where we, he didn't experience this either. And uh, so someone, someone address Huang's. I'll, sh I'll share maybe by way of potentially. Um, so I grew up here in PG County and I went to public schools and I was a minority growing up everywhere. Um, and so it never, I mean, I, I think I was more aware of race in a way because of that and less aware of racism because of that. Uh, and the high school that I went to at the time, I would say it was actually more diverse than it is now. It's, it's largely, it's still um, like a white minority, but it's, it's largely Hispanic. When I was there, there were like 53 different countries represented in rather large um, numbers. So <clears throat> that um, I went to school in Virginia for college. So I went to school in Harrisonburg, Harrisonburg, Virginia. It's a small town, um, and that was really my first experience with racism. And up until that point, I don't think I really believed it hmm. because I hadn't seen the negative effect. Like you, you know, it, like they talk about it here a lot. I mean. All of my friends were black and Filipino and Hispanic, and it just didn't affect my world. Um, and when I got to college, my race, my, my roommate was very racist. Um, she used, uh, you know, lots of racially charged language. She would just, she wouldn't go certain places because there were black people there. I mean, it it, it blew my mind, and I I thought at first like, here I found one like here, <laughs> <laughs> like, like somehow she ended up in my room. Um, and then as I kind of got more involved in campus, I just saw that like organizations um, were closed to my like just kind of functionally close to minorities. Um, and so I got involved in minority student outreach and um, started going to their meetings 
and very quickly found out, sadly, that like that was their safe space and I wasn't welcome there either. Um, so they wouldn't let me sign up for things. Like they would literally pull sign-up sheets away from me. So it wasn't, um, one of the things they did was they made sure that uh, minority students were paired up with a minority, um, potential minority students were paired up with a minority student which I understand, but like there was, so I couldn't do that. You know, they, they didn't want, they wanted them to feel comfort, you know, comforted when they came to campus, and so I couldn't help with that. And um, I think what I realized is, is just like how, um, how present of a reality it is for a lot of people. And it really, like, it's something they're thinking about a lot, and it affects the decisions that they're <coughs> making. Um, and then I think the other thing that really struck me was just when I um, was working with uh, both the homeless population in Silver Spring and then with um, the uh, trafficking victims in Baltimore City. And it, it's very obvious how much poverty and violence um, has taken its toll on the, on the minority community. And when you begin to work in victim services, it, it's, it's just, there are more minorities represented than um, white people. There just are, and it ravages communities. And so I think I got a better sense for the reality that like people are starting from behind as a people group um, and are having to work harder than I have had to. And, it, and, and poverty is an issue, but, but race is also a really big issue. Um, so I, I would say I'm so grateful for the very unique experience I've had in this area. Um, but since high school, I have realized just how unique of an experience that is. Um, and we would say, like we went up to Charleston on our honeymoon, and we were struck by how like kind of the worker bees were black and the management was white in our hotel, in the restaurants, in the, right? I mean, yeah. it, was, it was obvious to us in a way that it's just not here. Um, I don't know. But that does not mean it's just because you see that most of the, the higher leadership are white does not mean, it's not evidence of that unless you dive into it and see that a different in level of education. I come here, you know, later, my mom don't learn any English. I have to expect that I have to be far behind from those who start out as little. They learn the English language. They know the grammar since they're little. I learned that in college. I have to be behind them. And I have to admit to the reality of the differences. In that, that I'm, I'm not saying as human, that's not that. It happened everywhere in the world. But we have to look at it in a reality, like really see it for the reality of it. And this country is the rule of law. It's the rule of law racism. It's the law oppressive. I think it is. Well, it's the people who are people who, and those people who didn't obey the law and do those kind of things to call the people, are they being punished? That, that's what's most important to me. But you can't control the behavior of other people. How old were you when you came to the United States? I came when I was nine years old. 
nine. So you lived nine years in, in Vietnam. In Vietnam, did you see instances of discrimination, prejudice based on? Not color, but by affiliation to governmental um, officials and um, resources, if you're rich or poor. Okay, so there was discrimination based on socioeconomic status. And of course, because of the war, if you were part of those in the losing side of the war, so you experienced, or did you experience personally, uh, discrimination because you were you weren't on the winning side of the war? Personally, did or your mom and dad, your relatives? Yeah, and I, I and I hear enough stories about it too. Okay, so in, so in principle, you see that human beings treat each other differently based on whatever distinctions they choose to elevate. Mm -hmm whether it's status or aligning with a political party or skin color or whatever. Everyone had the same color skin in Vietnam at the time. Okay. Yeah, and, I, and I see more of this, even though we are speaking the same language and the same color. I see more of the differences in treatment between one person versus another. I'm sorry, where? Here or here? Well, in Vietnam, I don't see it here. Sorry, what did you see in Vietnam? Just say it again. More. I see more differences in treatment based on your economic and um, affiliation with government schools. Like in Vietnam, more, and I have not seen it here. Okay. And I mean, I see it, you know, the way when I was all growing up, there was slur and things like that. And contrary to most people see, I get bullied by black kids. But I know that that has nothing to do with race. I know that that's kids. You know, we talk to each other, we meet each other at town because, you know, we may not know. We have to be learned, you know, to treat each other right. So I never see it as racism because when I get older, I don't experience that. It's only when I was like in an elementary school kid and we were mean to each other. But so let's, let's pursue for a second the Charleston uh, honeymoon illustration. Okay, do you want to? Yeah, actually, I just wanted to yeah. comment. So, we weren't necessarily judgmental of the management who happened to be white and thinking they're like these terrible people. I mean, I think the way we were perceiving it is there's something systemic there that, that hasn't been overcome yet that we see here, as in, you know, like as in DC. So, so I, you know, we weren't necessarily judging individual white people there who happened to have more status, but it just was obvious because it was so. So you know for And yeah. so they're coming from a history of where perhaps people were treated improperly, keeping them, obviously, keep keeping them in these positions so it was easier for them to obtain that status and so forth. So, so I mean, we, yeah, we didn't think there was a terrible racist counter or anything. We were just seeing the effects of that mentality and history that, was, that still had them in that, in that kind of stratus. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you're going to go a different direction, but one of the things that... I keep saying minority, and I guess if you're white, minority is at least around here in our country, the one is not. So I'm guessing that you know we have you know we have different kinds of minorities here, and you know we have black, but then there's African. You know, I'm playing basketball with a bunch that are from Africa, and they. I mean, it, it's there's differences there too, and so I'm wondering if it would be helpful in our discussion to also consider not just saying minority, but recognizing the particular minority that, that individuals were from because they can be treated quite differently um, 
Americans might be feeling things very differently or treated differently, and we have Pakistani and India and, and yeah. India. So, so it's just um, yeah, good. Be part of that experience. Too. Good, thank you. And we're going to do some problem solving hopefully next week for our last class. This is a discussion to get things on the table. Nate? Just very quickly, we want to simplify this, and it's something that's easily handled, but it's very complex. Yeah. And so I, I think we need to be careful not to try to reduce it to something that's like easily solved. Right. So I'm, I'm really intrigued with the, um, the illustration that Joe, Joe and Lindsay shared with us. Was that a hand up? It was, but I didn't No, go ahead. I'll have the last word. <laughs> I got the mic. Okay. Please. Um, I was just going to talk about my experience, which is that I grew up going to a Christian school, um, and all through elementary school, it was like half and half um, white, black, and some Asians. And my best friends were black growing up in elementary school, up until sixth grade. Then we changed campuses and we go to the high school building where you have middle school, seventh, eighth grade, up to twelfth grade. And as soon as we changed campuses, in the lunchroom, the black kids sat with the black kids, the white kids sat with the white kids. And to me, that was infuriating. I was thinking to myself, like, I'm losing my best friends. They're, everybody's just sort of, there was this natural split. And I've thought about this over the years, and I've thought about how, as children, I think we sift through this differently. Like, we, we, come, we come at a social situation just to make, we're making friends, we're making friends with people, with our peers, and then at some point people gravitate towards their comfort zones. And I think that part of what's ha what happens in our culture, if, if you're an African American, you're going to gravitate towards your comfort zone, and that is probably not your white friend's experience. Um, and and I, but I also experienced the same on the same hand, my my grandmother, who grew up in, uh, you know, was she was born in 1920, so she experienced a lot of racism and often used language that was very offensive to me. And we'd be sitting around the dinner table, and I would, she would say something that I would be like, super offensive. Like, how can you say this, Grammy? You can't talk like this today. You just can't do it. Um, but I also had to weigh that, and I as I you know, thought about it more, and we had discussions with my parents, that this is her experience, she grew up in a different time. Um, not, and not that it's right that she's using this language, but everybody comes from a different experience. Um, but the most interesting part about this, my thinking over this, is how I, the transition from childhood, having these friends where it didn't matter where you're from, what your skin color was, and then going to middle school where you're becoming more socially aware and finding your footing in social groups, and that's where the split started to happen. So, any responses? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, Jimmy Carter eloquently in detail describes growing up like you just described, and his best friends were the African American kids working on the farms with his family and around in his community. And in about sixth grade, they started disappearing. And or subtle things started happening, like if they were walking through the gate and a fence, his friends would hang back and wait for him to walk through first. And his friends explained that there was a talk 
that at a certain age, going into middle school and high school, there was a talk about what is appropriate behavior for black kids interacting around white kids. I don't know if you can speak to any more about that, but it was very interesting to me because I was reading the successive talks of how to teach self-preservation and protection beyond your guard at a certain age as things get more complicated. Edward, um, any response to what Melissa well, said? Well, Sweet. Go there, ahead. You know, there is that book, Why Are All Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? Uh, so that would be... That's the title of the book. That's the title <laughs> of the book. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Why Are All Black Kids Sitting Together? Yeah, that, that's a... So, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't remember the author right now, but... So it does talk about this begins in middle school and high school, but as a, um, as a black child, you're taught that, you know, you can have these friends right now, but, but as you, you know, we use that word socialize, but you're not going to socialize, you're not going to date, you're not going to build relationships with white kids as you move into your teens, you know. So it, it depends upon the community you grew up in. Um, I grew up in I grew up in California in a very in the 60s, and so a lot of that was changing. But uh, and I grew up in a military community where things um, were different, also. So, but that's that's what you're taught. That's hmm. yeah. All right, I'll address this next week, whatever that means. And thank you, everybody, and we'll uh, do some problem solving and relate it specifically to Wallace as we conclude next week. Let's pray. Thank you for my brothers and sisters. Thank you for the opportunity now to freely go and worship you, Lord Jesus. Send your spirit to every heart to make your presence known, that you'd fill us with confidence and joy and worship and love, and particularly a heart for people that are different than us. In Jesus' name, amen.